I am really happy to be speaking with you uh, this morning uh, because we're in a passage of scripture that I absolutely love. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, This chapter has meant a whole lot to my spiritual life and development over the years. And my prayer today uh, is that I'll be able to communicate it in a way that it deserves to be communicated. Uh, One of the scariest things that I ever heard as a preacher, as a communicator of the word, um, is a statement uh, by a woman named Heather Zempel. Um, She said this statement, goes like this, uh, preachers do a really good job of answering questions that no one is asking. And uh, that always has stuck with me uh, because after I heard that, I realized that I have fallen victim to that way more than I like to admit. Um, Happy uh, to have some friends from uh, the the church that I pastored before coming here, uh, and they will tell you that they can answer some pretty random questions that they never asked before. Uh, They could probably answer, I remember one sermon, they could answer why the 1998 Yankees were the most complete baseball team uh, ever. There's another sermon uh, they could answer why Tertullian shaped third century theology. Uh, And the bad news about that is that not only were they not asking that question, uh, but that doesn't actually change anyone's life or impact anyone's life in any way, shape, or form. Now, that's one of the many reasons why I absolutely love what Paul is doing here in our passage today. Uh, Because first of all, as we said two weeks ago, he is literally answering questions that the Corinthians have asked. Uh, They wrote a letter to Paul asking certain questions, and 1 Corinthians is his response uh, to some of those questions. Uh, So he's answering questions that people are asking. But secondly, what he writes about uh, is incredibly relevant to our world today. In fact, I would argue that all of us have asked questions that Paul is going to answer in our uh, section of Scripture this morning. So let's jump into it if we can. First Corinthians chapter 10, it'll be up on the screen. Uh, but if you have a Bible or using the YouVersion app, you can follow along as well. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And finally, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's bow our heads and pray together. 
Dear Heavenly Father, I am so grateful uh, that today is a brand new day. Father, your mercies are new every morning. And this morning is another opportunity to hear your voice, to respond to your voice, and to learn from you. But God, I pray that more than our minds being molded, God, I pray that our hearts would be formed by you today. Lord God, that we'd be able to love more authentically, that we'd be able to love each other and you just a little bit deeper as a result of what you're speaking to us through the text today. I pray, Father God, that we would take an honest look at ourselves and our relationships, Lord God, and allow them to be changed by your goodness and your faithfulness today. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'd wager to say that if you are older than eight years old, uh, you have found yourself saying this phrase that I use probably more often than I should. The phrase is like this, I will never do that again. I want to emphasize the that again. Uh, I will never do that thing again. Most of the time, it's something small uh, and dumb. Uh, but a lot of times, we find ourselves saying that after some pretty big and ridiculous things. So uh, the big and obvious examples of this are if you've ever gone on a dating website and you chose to meet that person without the picture on their profile, in a day or two, you'd probably say, that is a bad idea. I will never do that again. Maybe you bought that price to move meat at the butcher that one time. A day later, you said, wow, I will never do that <laughs> again. Uh, or you clicked the link in your email because that prince of the African country was in a real jam. You realize like three or four days later, I will never do that thing again. Those things are examples of mistakes that we make that hopefully we do one time and we never repeat. We never do again. But if we're honest with ourselves, our past and maybe even our present is littered with examples of smaller mistakes that we've made over and over again. And regardless of how often we use the phrase, I'll never do that again, those lesser issues cause us to remain in the same pattern or the same cycle. And we find ourselves going back to it and doing it again saying, I'll never do that again, but finding ourselves going back to it, and the cycle continues. The question I want to pose to you this morning, it'll be up on the screens, goes like this. Why? Why do we keep making the same mistakes? Why do we keep making the same mistakes? In other words, why can't we just make a mistake once, learn from that mistake, and never repeat it again? As we begin to unpack that question this morning, I would like to submit to you that part of the answer lies not just in the mistake itself, but in the underlying truth that that mistake reveals about us, about our hearts. I'll say it again. Uh, it's not necessarily about the mistake that we keep making over and over again. It's about the underlying truth that that mistake reveals about our hearts or our actions. Because it's true, our actions, especially our mistakes, really just serve to kind of reveal our desires. In fact, uh, Paul says that in verse 6 a little bit. We'll dissect that momentarily. But the truth is that only the gospel can change the desires of our heart. I see a problem uh, in my world with friends and family, even with myself sometimes, and maybe you see it too. Uh, people that you love, people that you respect, that are very well-meaning, uh, they are very easily, they very easily fall victim and get stuck in an endless cycle of mistake and regret, mistake and regret. But the problem is they're kind of oblivious to the underlying desires that fuel that cycle. 
And so what they end up doing is they point to outside factors as the reason why they're stuck. Now, these are very educated people, people that you respect. I'm not saying like that one uncle that you're like, whoa, wait a second. I'm talking about the people that you are like, this doesn't make sense to me. Why are you repeating the same mistake over and over again? You probably know what I mean. It's that, that friend uh, who finds themselves constantly in financial straits, but it's never their fault, right? It's always their boss or, uh, you know, the, the person at the grocery store that gypped them out of that coupon or, um, you know, whatever the situation is. It's not something underlying inside of them. It's, it's outside, right? Uh, the problem is, is that for every friend like that that you can point to or family member that you can point to, there's probably someone that can point to you and point to me and say that they're in a cycle like that as well. Because when you're inside of a cycle like that, mistake and regret, mistake and regret, it's nearly impossible to see the underlying cause of it, right? But when you're outside of the situation, it's as clear as day. Now, I, I bring that up because this is where the Corinthians are as Paul begins to uh, speak to them about a question that they've asked um, him already. In the previous chapters, chapter 8 and chapter 9, Paul talks about meat, sacrifice to idols, and what that means about our freedom and how we should be using our freedom as a great way to point to the gospel. He's going to actually pick up that argument at the end of chapter 10 as well. But right here in the middle of this pretty long argument, he moves to a spiritual illustration to warn against how easy it is for our hearts to get caught up in this cycle of desire or mistake and regret. So I'm going to look at the first six verses again, if you want to bear with me up on the screen. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. This is a reference to the Israelites' uh, uh, leaving Egypt, going through the Exodus, and in the wilderness being led by uh, a pillar of fire and a, and a pillar of a cloud. Uh, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Isn't that interesting? Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And then verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. What Paul is doing here in these verses is that he's painting a picture of the Israelites who had radical experiences with God in the book of Exodus. Have you ever read the book of Exodus? I don't know if uh, some of you have, maybe some of you haven't. Uh, but it's really incredible, the miracles that, that take place. Uh, these Israelites were there when the Red Sea parted which I think would be pretty amazing. They were there, they saw food drop out of the sky when they were hungry, which is miraculous and amazing. When they were thirsty in the desert, Moses struck a rock and the rock split in two and water was pouring out of the rock. This didn't just happen one time, this happened in the beginning and at the end of their time in the desert. So these people experienced God, but at the end of the day, all that God had done all they experienced miraculously, it didn't keep them from displeasing God, verse 5 says. That's kind of shocking to us in 2019. You can kind of say it this way. All the things that uh, they experienced firsthand, it didn't lead to a change in the things that they desired. And so uh, verse 6 talks about how their desires just weren't swayed at all. The question is, why not, right? Why not? 
they got what they wanted, right? They were hungry. They got food. They were thirsty. They got drink. They needed a way to escape uh, from um, Egypt. They got it miraculously. How come that didn't change their desires, right? Uh, isn't that the key to life change, getting what we want? That's kind of how we live today, right? If I can just get what I want, then I know that I'll be happier. I won't be so angry at work or at home. All I need to do is just get what I want. The problem is, is that that doesn't change the underlying desires or the motivation of our heart. And we can sit here in 2019 and we could say things like, man, if I experienced all that Israel experienced, I would be all in with my faith. Whether you're a skeptic in the room uh, or you're a fully engaged follower of Jesus, no matter where we are, uh, we're tempted to think that if those miraculous experiences were ours, that we would be changed. Something wrong with them, right? Because they were not changed. They died in the wilderness. If it was me, I would be all in. I would be all in. You imagine talking to your friend about how hungry you are, and all of a sudden a bird swoops by and drops some Five Guys burgers and fries right in on your lap. If that happened, I would be all in <laughs> for sure. Or maybe you're working uh, at the office and you get mad at the copy machine and you kick the copy machine and Centerway Blend Coffee just comes pouring out, you know, like, wow, I would be all in with my faith if the miraculous experiences like that happened, right? But the problem is, is that all of their experiences saw the Israelites getting exactly what they didn't have everything that they needed, but it didn't result in a change in their desires. Their experiences couldn't change their hearts. And verse 5 says that as a result, God was not pleased with them. Yikes. That is bad news for us today. If miraculous experiences can't change us, then the question is, what can? <laughs> what can change us? Last month, uh, January 2019, Forbes ran an article called No Ownership, No Problem, an updated look at why millennials value experiences over owning things. And I, I have them, I uh, just put the picture up here, because one of my pet peeves is when preachers or any other communicator say, hey, I read an article, and all of my, my thesis is based on this article. I'm not going to tell you where it is or what's from, but if you Google this article and this picture comes up, that's the article, all right? Just so that you know, like, it's, it's actual truth. Here's what it says. Forbes says this, 74% of Americans, not just millennials, mind you, but Americans of all ages would rather spend money on experiences than on products. Don't raise your hand, but is that you? You'd rather spend money on experiences rather than products. Uh, the reasoning goes like this. Experiences and relationships make us happier than products do, and those things are also more shareable uh, than products are. In other words, you get more likes on Instagram if you take your family to Florida and post pictures there than if you were to buy like a $10,000 TV, right, and post that on Instagram. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying if you feel that way, then you're wrong. Experiences are bad. You shouldn't, you shouldn't put stock in them. No, I think that there's some, there's some truth to that, that experiences are shareable, that relationships do matter, that they provide some joy in our lives. And so, yeah, I probably among that majority that would look to experiences and relationships rather than just accumulating stuff or products. But what happens, uh, what Forbes is telling us is that these experiences, they don't change your life. What they do is they just reveal what it is that your life is aiming toward. So the article goes on to say that uh, if you want to be happier, then just take a trip somewhere or get some friends and... Uh, 
you know, go to the, uh, the, the wine and art pairing kind of things that they do, right? Because that's what's going to make you happy. And what I would argue, just from experience alone, not just from Scripture, but just, just my own experience, is that those things can be great, but are they the source of ultimate happiness? Scripture would say no. My experiences would say no. Maybe your experiences would say no as well. With this understanding of life, what Forbes tells us our generations are looking for, this is how we read 1 Corinthians 10. And Paul says that the incredible Instagram-worthy experiences uh, that the Israelites had, they just could not change their hearts. They found themselves in the same patterns that they found themselves in Egypt. So they were complaining in Egypt. They went through the Exodus. They had these amazing experiences. They were complaining in the desert. They were grumbling against leadership in Egypt. They go off into the desert. They're grumbling against leadership. They're kind of upset about the food in Egypt. They go off into the wilderness. They complain about the food. In fact, they say, let's go back to Egypt. The food is even better there, right? So the things that were uh, causing the Israelites to be upset and, and uh, have this perspective didn't change just because their situation changed or their experiences changed. And again, I'm not saying that experiences are bad or they're wrong. All I'm saying is that those experiences don't have what it takes to change us from the inside out. So this is kind of scary for us. Wow, we put a lot of stock in it. We put a lot of stock in relationships and the things that we value. But Paul goes on to say in verses 7 through 10 that the desires, he re to reveal the desires, the underlying desires that shaped the Israelites and will then shape the Corinthians and have the potential to shape you and I as well. So 7 through 10, do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's a really good lesson and why we shouldn't complain all too often. Can you imagine a situation where uh, you said something bad about your boss and the ground swallowed you up? <laughs> or the death angel would come by and be like, it's time. You're like, oh no, I take it back. I'm, I'm really, really sorry. The truth of the matter is, is that what Paul is saying in these verses is that these are the things that will capture our hearts. Verse 8, Paul talks about sexual immorality. And what the context of this is, is that uh, the, the Israelites in Egypt would see sexual immorality as a way to worship pagan gods. And so they picked right back up where they left in the desert when all of a sudden things were kind of not the way that they thought they should be. They engaged in sexual immorality as a way to worship pagan gods. And for the Corinthians, they saw this uh, all the time. That's the culture they were in as well, right? Uh, verse 9 they, they said, we must not put Christ to the test and we're destroyed by serpents. Testing the Lord. Uh, in Exodus and in, in Numbers, we see that testing the Lord is just a way of saying, complaining against your elders, those in authority over you, and then grumbling against God. We see that not just in Exodus and the Old Testament and not just in the New Testament, but almost every day of our lives, we're tempted to say, man, my life just isn't the way I want it to be. Whose fault is it? How can I... Uh, blame somebody else for the situation that I'm in. 
In these ways, the Israelites looked to created things and lesser things to take the ultimate place in their life. And for the Corinthians, this is going to ring a few bells for them. History was on the verge of repeating itself in Corinth because the same underlying desires that lured the Israelites were tempting the Corinthians as well. So when I use the phrase history repeating itself, I mean it in two different ways. Sometimes we get into this cycle of mistake and regret, mistake and regret, and we think that's just the way I am. History is going to have to repeat itself because that's just my lot in life. There's no way to break out of it. That's just me being me. History is going to repeat itself because that's who I am. Another way that we see it is generationally where we say, you know what, my parents were like this. I guess that means I'm going to have to be like this. Or the people uh, that, that raised me, you know, uh, in local parentis, you know, instead of my parents, they were like this. I guess I have to be as well. Or this is the way I learned how to do this. I guess I'm stuck this way. But what I want you to know, what Paul is saying today, is that there is good news that history does not need to repeat itself. Whether it be a generational cycle or whether it be a personal cycle, history does not need to repeat itself. Paul uses a theological word uh, that gets misconstrued sometimes, I think, uh, and it's the word idolatry. Because for many of us, we hear idolatry and we think little wooden statues, right? Idols that you could just kind of put on a bookshelf and uh, we think, oh my gosh, people that worship idols, they're, they're so silly because that's just a block of wood and then they bow down to it. Uh, Paul says weirdly that some people like take their clothes off to, to worship it. Like that's not me, you know, I promise that's not me. I'm not going to fall victim to that idea of idolatry. But Paul says that's not necessarily idolatry. In fact, he, go, he breaks down 7 through 10 to tell us that anything that captures our heart and directs it away from the ultimate thing, the ultimate good, can be called an idol, can be idolatry. So with that definition in mind, we look out at the Israelites and we say, huh, their hearts were swayed by things that the Corinthians were probably swayed by. The Corinthians were swayed by things that if I'm honest with myself, I'm swayed by. So the truth of the matter is, is that we are no different. That this is the issue for us too. This is the issue that keeps us from identifying the cycle of mistake and regret, mistake and regret, and breaking free, free excuse me, through the power of God. So Paul is saying to the Corinthians, history does not need to repeat itself. You don't have to make the same mistakes that the Israelites made there is a way out. And then he, he looks to us as his readers from down the down generational lines and says, there is good news. He gives 11, 12, and 13 as good news for us uh, if we can understand this section of scripture through the lens of what Paul was just saying. Because I'm going to be honest with you, 11, 12, and 13 taken out of context, can do some serious damage to your theology, uh, to your situation, to, to your life in general. So let's look at these verses in context if we can, and we'll break them down. 11, 12, and 13. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, 
and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So Paul sees the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt as an example for him and his readers. They were living through a similar pattern as the chosen people uh, in the wilderness. So they had divine revelation. They saw amazing, miraculous things, but it still didn't lead to change. And so they had human disobedience. And as a result of the human disobedience, there was divine judgment. So you had divine revelation, human disobedience, divine judgment. That was the pattern in Exodus. It was the pattern in, in Corinth. And it could be the pattern for us as well if we're not careful. So both the Israelites and the Corinthians, they were privileged to see miraculous and amazing things. But verse 12 says that if you think that that's enough to keep you standing, you're the one in danger of falling. You're the one in danger of falling. We look at these verses out of context and they become very dangerous because we take 12 out of context and say, and say, hey, if you think you stand, take heed because you're going to fall, right? Someone might say that if you're projecting holier than thou, let's say, uh, or if you uh, offer a way, you know, if you're kind of uh, sharing with them maybe the good news of the gospel, uh, or you're saying, listen, you don't have to be in this pattern. Someone might say, hey, if you think you stand, be careful lest you fall. In other words, saying, uh, you don't have any, any foot to stand on any more than I do, right? That's dangerous and out of context. Verse 11 we can say that these things happened to them as an example. They were written down for us. We can take that to mean that we are better than the Israelites. Like God was practicing with the Israelites because we are the ones that really matter in 2019. And so like God didn't really care about them. He was just using them as an example because he loves you way more than them. Obviously, I don't have to go into how dangerous that kind of thinking can be. Because then we say, hey, you know what? That's right. I am God's favorite. And so maybe the way that I'm living is the standard, right? I won't get too far into that. But I will say that his answer to what can break that cycle of, of falling and, and needing to get back up again and then falling and needing to get back up again, the answer uh, to how to break this cycle comes from maybe the most misquoted verse that Paul uh, ever wrote. There's a lot of misquoted verses in the Bible for sure. Uh, but this one's up there uh, as one of the most misquoted. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you, <clears throat> that you may be able to endure it. So what Paul is saying, the good news that Paul is saying today is that what frees us from repeating the same mistakes over and over again is the faithfulness of God. He says, God is faithful. So in the proper context, the temptation that Paul is talking about is the temptation to set our hearts and our desires on anything that will spiral us into a mistake and regret cycle. So he's not necessarily saying, hey, I'm tempted to eat that third donut. Oh, because you know what? There's no temptation taking me, right? Uh, God is faithful. I don't have to have that donut. Now, you can use that in, in that context. That's totally fine, right? But God, I think what, what Paul is saying here uh, goes a little bit deeper than having that third donut or not having that third donut. It's that the temptation is to project uh, my desires toward anything that's not the greatest thing, an idol, things that, that we would call idols 
or idolatry. And if that were to happen, idols are very, very good things almost all of the time, right? Our family, uh, our spouse, uh, friends, a job promotion, you know, whatever. Uh, most of the time, almost all of the time, an idol is a good thing. But when we make it the ultimate thing and the ultimate source of our desires, uh, they crumble very quickly. And we find ourselves miserable. And we find ourselves in that cycle of regret. He's saying that we don't have to be in that cycle because God in his faithfulness has provided a way of escape. Now one of the other reasons why this is so misquoted uh, is because people who are very, very well-meaning will see you in a cycle of, of mistaken regret and will use this verse and say something like, hey, don't worry, God won't give you more than you can handle. I think I may have said this, maybe every single one of us in the room has said this to somebody very well-meaning to reassure them like things are going to be okay. So we say things like, God won't give you more than you can handle, it's okay. We heard this an awful lot when our twins were born. Neither one of them were sleeping. Eli took 35 days to get out of the NICU and we heard, God won't give you more than you can handle. And without sleep, you just want to like deck somebody for sure. Uh, and we said, oh, you know, that's very nice. I appreciate it. But what they were really saying was that uh, God knows the workload that you can handle. And God will only give you enough that you can work through it on your own. And if you're failing, if you feel like you're drowning uh, in this endless cycle, it's not God's fault, right? He's given, he only gives you what you can handle, and so you've got to work your way out, out of this thing, okay? So don't even worry about it. That's completely the opposite of what Paul is saying in this verse. Now, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty if you've used that phrase, because like I said, I've used that phrase as well. But here is what, in its proper context, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is saying, because like I said, he's arguing the opposite. If the Israelites could have handled the desert, they wouldn't have all died in the desert. If they could have entered the promised land all on their own because God wouldn't give them more than they could handle, then they wouldn't have needed all of the miraculous experiences that they had. It wouldn't have taken them 40 years to accomplish uh, this thing and the mercy of God to accomplish it. Paul's point is that when we're tempted to think that we can rely on anything other than the faithfulness of God to provide freedom for us, we end up in the wilderness. We end up in that same cycle that the Israelites found themselves in. And so what we say is that God continuously allows us to experience more than we can handle so that our heart and our desire will run to him. If he wouldn't let us have more than we could handle, we would never need God. We would never need the mercy of God, the faithfulness of God in our life. And Paul is saying that that faithfulness is available to you this morning. The faithfulness of God is available to you. In the Greek, the faithfulness of God extends to the very, uh, one of the last verse, uh, words in this verse here. That word escape that he uses in verse 13 is actually very close to the word exodus. So it's the word ekbasis. So he's kind of giving a play on words here. He's saying that your exodus the thing that the Israelites thought would, would get them to the place where their desires were changed, your exodus can be found in Jesus, in Jesus. And what he's doing is he's uh, not quoting, but he's using the same word that the gospel writer Luke used uh, in Luke chapter 9, verse 31, 
Luke uses the exact same word to talk about the death of Jesus. So Luke says uh, in 9.31, it's not out on the screen, but if you're taking notes, you can write it down. Who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, basis, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Meaning that the way of escape out of this cycle here isn't trying harder, giving you all that you can handle, or equipping yourself to handle it on your own. The way of escape is trusting that Jesus, who paid the ultimate price and said yes to his Father's plan to experience the wilderness on your behalf, uh, has done that in his goodness and his faithfulness. That his death is your exodus from that cycle. So as we respond to the word today, as we like to say basically weekly here, uh, the text requires something from us today. And as we prepare our hearts to respond to that word through singing, the question that I would have for you is what does this mean for you? What cycle do I need freedom from? What cycle do I need freedom from today? Maybe you're in that cycle of mistake and regret uh, because you think it's a generational thing. I'm always going to be this way because that's the way my parents were, my grandparents were, so on and so forth. Maybe you're thinking, this is just who I am and there's no way that I can change it. And the answer to that would probably be probably right. You're, you're probably right. There's no way that you can change it. But Paul says that there's a way that he can change it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God is faithfulness. Where, where do you need the faithfulness of God to show up to break the chains of that cycle, that addiction, uh, whatever it would be, the same thing over and over and over again? I'm just going to ask if you would just uh, close your eyes and, and just bow your head momentarily as we engage in, this, in some singing and worship. I'm just going to pray a quick prayer that our hearts be receptive to this will worship from there. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord God, that your word uh, is not overbearing, Lord God, that it's not a yoke of heaviness, but it's a, a yoke of freedom, Lord God, that because of the faithfulness of God, we have the freedom today to be released from those things that we keep on saying, I will never do that again. I thank you, Lord God, that as a result of your power, there has been a release over the chains in our lives. And I pray, oh God, uh, that as we engage in worship, that you would meet us right here, right where we are, Lord God, and change us from the inside out. I pray it in Jesus' name.